There's something about a jug of maple syrup sitting on your shelf that makes you need to use it for something, for anything. So this week, I did. We're making two dishes from maple country. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. of the world's maple syrup is produced in Canada, and 90% of Canada's maple syrup is produced in Quebec. Famously, the Quebecois maintain a strategic reserve of maple syrup by which they are able to regulate the price, controlled by the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers. The Federation oversees all aspects of Canadian maple syrup production, and therefore the world's. Until the importation of sugarcane, maple syrup was one of the few readily available sweeteners on the North American continent. Native Americans figured out thousands of years ago that maple trees could be tapped for their sweet sap and almost immediately began boiling that sap to concentrate and caramelize its sugars. Around 40 gallons of sap are needed to produce one gallon of syrup, and it sounds like a lot, and it is, but it's much more concentrated than other tree saps that are also used for syrup. Birch, for instance, needs around 100 gallons per gallon of syrup. Sap from early in the run tends to produce lighter and more delicate syrup, while late-season sap produces darker and more intensely flavored syrup. The maple syrup most widely available at grocery stores, especially outside of maple syrup regions, tends to be the lighter syrups. Presumably, the really good stuff gets held closer to home. For years, each U.S. state and Canadian province that produced maple syrup graded their syrups differently. What was called A in one place could be B somewhere else, or perhaps number one, or maybe number two, or perhaps a subcategory of A or B, so that the person attempting to buy maple syrup needed a sharp legal mind to ascertain whether the particular jug of syrup they were looking at was very light and clear, with delicate flavor, or dark and intense and strong. In 2014, however, the U.S. and Canada agreed on a standard, which became the law of the land by 2016. It eliminated the old grade B and number two designations that true maple syrup lovers always considered the best and replaced them all with two categories, grade A or consumer grade destined for retail shelves and processing grade used in large scale industrial food manufacture. Grade A was further split into four categories based on color and intensity of flavor, golden color and delicate taste, amber color and rich taste, dark color and robust taste, and finally, very dark color and strong taste. Or in French, doré, ambre, foncé, and très foncé. It is a curiosity of maple syrup that the top of the scale is not considered the best. In fact, when I picked out several cans of ambre from a producer at the Marché Jean Talon in Montreal, assuming that amber was the darker and more flavorful kind, He immediately told me, with no prompting from me, that I should put all the cans back, because what I was actually looking for was foncé. And so I did. 
and he was right. So there are two maxims that I think everybody can pretty well agree are are excellent rules to live by. One, of course, we all know, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. And the other, which is probably less known, but I think is uh, equally potent, which is uh, always make friends with a Canadian who has access to maple syrup because they can get the good stuff. They can get number two, grade B, Francais, as they say in Quebec. That's the stuff you want. So we're going to make a couple different dishes today with maple syrup, but we're going to start today with dessert. And the reason is, is that it has to sit in the refrigerator overnight. Uh, I can't actually make it until tomorrow. It is a Quebecois classic called pudding chômeur. It means, literally translated, it means unemployed man's pudding. Right away, you know you're dealing with something that's really simple to make. It was originally, they generally attribute it to like the depression times uh, when people wanted something really simple, something really simple with easily available ingredients, which in Quebec, one of the easy, easily available ingredients is in fact maple syrup, syrup durable. Now the version that we're gonna be making today is perhaps like, putting chômeur after the chômeur has gotten himself a job and now has some money because there is a lot of maple syrup and a lot of heavy cream, neither of which would be necessarily something we might associate with unemployed people. It's a version uh, that I, I have had, actually. Uh, well, I don't know if it's exactly this same recipe, but I have had the version by the guy who makes it. His name is Martin Picard. And he's a Quebecois chef. He's got a restaurant in Montreal. He's also got a sugar shack, which is what they call in French, it's a cabane sucre, which is what they call a sugar shack. And in Quebec, it's like a big deal. Every year, you know, in like March and April, people travel out of the city. They'll travel out of like Montreal or Quebec City or wherever they live. And they'll go out into the countryside to these sugar shacks. And they eat like ridiculous food. Like, I mean, they just like pile gargantuan quantities of food on the table and all of it contains maple syrup, and it's like this just orgy of consumption, and, and it's a huge deal. Anyway, he's got, he's got a restaurant in Montreal, and then he also has one of these cabana sucras outside of Montreal, which I've never been to because it's impossible to get into, um, but he also makes maple syrup. Anyway, that's where I got the restaurant, or the uh, inspiration for this recipe. Uh, it comes from, it's derived from one of his cookbooks. I don't have the particular cookbook, this particular recipe is basically his recipe. And the thing that makes his stand apart is that it's a little more extravagant in its maple syrup and in its uh, heavy cream than the perhaps the, <laughs> the slightly thriftier classic version. But that's kind of what his whole deal is. His restaurant is basically a shrine to foie gras and maple syrup, and it, and it works. Basically what Pudding Chômeur is, is a cake, a really simple, really basic butter cake that is actually drenched in a maple syrup and usually either cream or milk mixture. And then you bake it. The top, you bake the topping with the cake and the topping gets super, super sticky. And because it's completely covering the cake, the, the cake itself stays really, really moist. Part of the reason I think why it's called a pudding, I'm actually not sure of the derivation of the word. It's, it's not a pudding in the sense like we, we know a pudding, like a cornstarch pudding. It's a pudding in the in the English sense where a pudding is just the sweet after the meal. It could be 
anything, you know, a bowl of ice cream can be pudding. It's dessert. And so that's the sense in which this is a pudding. It's not like a cornstarch pudding. It's actually a cake. But when you bury it under all this maple syrup and all this cream or milk or whatever, that keeps the, the cake itself very, very soft, you know, and very sticky. And the whole thing is just like sticky and delicious and rich and it's insanely sweet, but in the good way that maple syrup brings because maple syrup, it's not just like tooth aching sweetness. It's got a lot of complexity to it. We're gonna start here, we're gonna make this cake. And it's really simple. It's like, the, it's the easiest cake in the world. It is a very basic butter cake, which I'm starting. I've got room temperature butter. It's always important to have room temperature butter for your butter cakes. And I've got sugar. And all we're gonna do is cream these together for a while until they get light, soft, and fluffy. Always cream on high speed. There's never an advantage to creaming on low. It just happens a lot faster if you do it on high. And I do have a rubber spatula with me just because uh, you do wanna stop it every now and then just to scrape things up from the side. Just to make sure you get all the bits of, you know, there's no unincorporated chunks of like slightly colder butter or any clumpy bits of sugar. You just stop every now and then. There's not really a trick to creaming butter and sugar. You just have to do it long enough. You don't want to do it so long that the, the butter starts to overheat and melt because what we're trying to do is, is as the, as the butter and the sugar, uh, beat together, the sugar crystals sort of dissolve a little bit, but they stay, you know, sort of attached to each other. So you get this sort of structure of almost like a whipped butter and sugar mixture. And that generates a lot of air. So the more you can successfully cream your, your butter and your sugar together, the fluffier it gets and the more, the softer and the more air you're going to get and the lighter the texture of your final cake. It's not such a huge deal in something like this, where it's gonna sit overnight, but for, particularly if you're making like a, a, you know, layer cake or something like that, which also uses the creaming method, you definitely wanna beat it until it's very, very light and fluffy. Look at it, get a feel of it, nice. So I'm gonna call that good. Scrape down the sides very well. And the other ingredients, such as they are, there aren't many. I've got two eggs. I've got a half a cup of, in this case, evaporated milk. You can use either evaporated or regular milk. I just happen to have a little tiny bit of evaporated milk from making macaroni and cheese for the macaroni show. It'll just make everything a little bit denser and a little bit richer, which I am fine with personally. I got two cups of pastry flour. This particular recipe, unfortunately, does not use weight, uh, which it did, but for something like this, it's not that big a deal. You know, we're not looking for a very precise structure on this. This is very much like a dump everything together, throw it in the oven and call it good. There's nothing complicated about this. We're not gonna be sad in 20 steps down the line if the cake's not super firm, you know, like you might with a sponge cake. So I've got uh, two cups of flour to go along with my half a cup of milk half a cup of butter, half a cup sugar, and I have two eggs somewhere. Where are they? Two eggs, here they are. Always incorporate your eggs first, that way you make sure that they get really well beaten. Flour always goes in last because even in something like this, we're, we don't want to overbeat it because that'll develop the gluten in the flour and that'll make it tough. And that's another reason why I'm using pastry flour in this, although you can certainly use all purpose in something like this. 
Definitely going to scrape down the sides of the bowl. Just beat it till it's pretty smooth. Doesn't have to get crazy smooth. Just mostly want to knock any big chunks of butter back down into the eggs so that they incorporate a little better. While that's going, I will add my milk. Uh, and in addition to the flour, I also have two or one teaspoon of baking powder and a little bit of salt, just a pinch of salt. So beat everything to a nice paste. And I'm gonna go ahead, add the flour in a couple of parts. It's really easy if you dump all the flour in there to wind up having to beat it a lot longer to get it adequately uh, mixed in. So beat it till just the first bit is incorporated and then I'll add the second amount. This is really important in doing something like a sponge cake where you usually add the flour in three shots. And we're just beating till the flour till it's just incorporated. And so now I've got, it's kind of a stiff dough. It's a lot stiffer than like a butter cake, a usual butter cake batter would be that you're gonna make like a layer cake out of. It's a little, it's a little more like a pound cake, although I think it's a little, it's still even a little bit stiffer than that. And that is okay. That's what we're looking for. From this point, this just rests overnight and that is to allow all the flour to hydrate, all the gluten to relax a little bit so that your final cake is not dense and it's not chewy. It's just soft and nice and moist. So I can put this aside until tomorrow and then tomorrow we can make our maple syrup and cream topping and finish our pudding chômeur. Let's finish our pudding chômeur. I just put a pan on the stovetop and I started my oven. And the pan on the stovetop now, this is the this is the outrageous part of this. You might want to make a smaller batch or perhaps be slightly less extravagant with the maple syrup if you do not in fact know a Canadian who can get you access to maple syrup at a cheaper price than the than you could typically get it at uh, at retail in Alaska. If I was buying this stuff outright at whatever markup <laughs> they charge here, I'd probably use a little less maple syrup. This is two cups of maple syrup and two cups of heavy cream. And I just poured them together into a saucepan on the stovetop. And all I'm doing now is just heating them up together. Monsieur Picard tells me to bring it to a boil and let it boil for three to four minutes. And so while that's happening, I'm going to go ahead and get my ramekins prepped. I've got seven out right now, and I think that's probably enough. You can also do this in a single, you know, like a cake dish or a baking pan or something like that. But, uh, the way that they that he serves it at his restaurant, and what I think is a really nice way of doing it, actually, is putting it in the ramekins. You put a little chunk of your dough in the bottom of the ramekin and pour the maple syrup and cream mixture all around it, and then you get a nice, uh, a nice little single serving of this stuff. And really, when you when you see the amount, you know, if you're getting six or seven or maybe even eight, I'm not sure exactly how many this is going to make. You know, when you get that many out of it, then it <laughs> it makes the the two cups of maple syrup a little easier to bear because it's not like it's pretty easy to if you go really nuts to go through almost a quarter cup of maple syrup on some pancakes so it's not near as outrageous as it sort of feels when you're doing it so i've got my uh cake dough my batter out all you do it's very stiff now it's not like any other kind of cake dough that you kind of expect 
It's it's really sticky, sort of really stiff. It doesn't pour. You actually have to dig in and pull it out in chunks. I've buttered all my ramekins. Um, I can't remember if he actually says to do that or not, but it's such a habit with me to butter ramekins that I just went ahead and did it. And you're not trying to fill the ramekin. You're just putting a sort of a generous sized chunk of the cake into each ramekin. And then you pour the maple syrup and the cream around it. So that forms a sauce. Like you're not even really, I'm not even trying to pat the cake down all on the bottom. Like I want the maple syrup to fill in around it and the cream. So I think this will be a good amount for seven. I mean, I could probably, if I was a little less generous on the cake, I could probably get eight ramekins out of this. But I'm gonna go ahead and be at least a little generous with the cake. Actually, you know what? I think I am gonna do another ramekin. A lot of the pleasure in this is definitely the sauce. So we'll do eight ramekins. That makes it even more economical. It just feels extravagant when you're putting two cups of maple syrup and two cups of uh, heavy cream together. But then you split it out over eight dishes and you know, it's not so bad. We tell ourselves that anyway. Now I've heated my oven to 450. And once we get these done, we're going to Stick them in the oven for roughly 20, 25 minutes, something like that. Oh, it's so beautiful. This cream mixture is just gorgeous. It's this amazing butterscotch brown. And I'm supposed to pour this over hot, and I'm guessing that starts to help things move along. And I've got all my ramekins, they're all on a half sheet. And this, this little thing, this is basically just a backdrop to the maple syrup. The cake is very plain. Um, there's not much else going on other than butter and sugar. There's not even any vanilla in it to compete with the maple syrup. This is about maple syrup in a way that a lot of dishes that use maple are not. Okay, so that's going on. So uh, while I'm waiting on my little maple syrup spilled, oh, so good. This, <laughs> it's tough because it's not really, it's almost not worth buying the this stuff you can get at most of the stores here because it's not number two it's not it's not the dark it's that lighter grade a i mean i like cane syrup and everything it's great it's not maple syrup birch syrup it's great but it's not maple syrup and i grew up with you know mostly like we usually didn't really have the real stuff you know in, in the south it's just not that common to get especially especially 30 years ago or more so, you know, there was a lot of Mrs. Butterworth and Aunt Jemima and just not the same, you know, just not at all. The first time, the first, first time you ever actually have the real thing is like, oh my God, what's the point of the other stuff except to provide sweetness? That's it. You can't do anything else with it. So there's a bit of a, there's a little bit of a backstory to this next dish, at least as, as, as far as how I came to discover it. My wife and I were on the East Coast one time. In fact, we were in Rhode Island, is where this particular episode took place. And we were at this restaurant in Rhode Island. It's kind of the, one of those restaurants that was almost like a precursor to one of the chain restaurants, you know? It was had a really big menu, but the menu was kind of dull. Obviously, it had been around for a while, but it was probably on the waning end of its career. It really kind of tell, like, it just wasn't that interesting anymore. The menu had a lot of pictures on it. <laughs> We're in this place and I'm looking at the menu and there's just, there's nothing that's really that appealing to me. And, and there's two sort of thing there's two things you can do when you find yourself in a restaurant like that. 
One is you can just go totally safe and get something really basic that nobody can ever screw up, like, you know, a hamburger or a chicken sandwich or something like that, that you know it's going to be fine. It's not going to be the best hamburger you ever had. It's not going to be the best chicken salad you ever had or chicken sandwich that you ever had, but it'll be okay. You know, you'll, you'll eat it, you'll forget about it, and you'll carry on. The other thing that will often happen in a place like this is that there will be a handful of items on the menu where you look at it and you're just like, what is that? You know, whether it's some regional specialty that you've never heard of or it's just like the owner got it into his head one day to put this thing on the menu and it never left and people surprisingly began to like it. Sometimes you'll come across these dishes and you're just like, where did that come from? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> I might never hear of it since. And it makes you interested. So in a lot of those restaurants like that where I'm like, this is going to be a really run-of-the-mill experience and I'm not going to really care about it. It's basically like a more expensive diner is what we're looking at with usually not as good food <laughs> as the average diner. So I've kind of gotten in the habit over the years of I will often, if there is one of those dishes that you, you look at and you're like, what is that? I've never, I can't understand where that came from. A lot of times I'll order them. Usually... You know, I gotta say, usually they're not very good, but occasionally, occasionally they are. And in this case, unfortunately, I have to say the actual dish was not very good. It was terrible, and we'll get to we'll get to we'll get to that in a second. But it did intrigue me quite a bit, and so that's why all these fifteen years later or whatever, I still make a variation on this every now and then, particularly if I have some maple syrup around. So this thing that I saw, I'm reading the menu and there's all this, you know, just totally generic, like, you know, regular, whatever, you know, the, you know exactly what kind of menu I'm talking about. You know, basic American sandwiches, a few steaks, some generic pastas, nothing very interesting, nothing very exciting, nothing you haven't seen, done better at a million other places a million times before. And then there on the menu was this dish called Chicken Vermont. And I was like, Chicken Vermont, what is that? <laughs> I've heard of chicken Vesuvius, you know, I've heard of chicken cacciatore, I've heard of chicken cordon bleu, I've heard of all these other chicken dishes. Chicken Vermont, what is that? So I started reading it, and it just got more intriguing. And the, the menu description was basically, okay, chicken Vermont, it's chicken with cheddar cheese, bacon, and maple syrup. And I was like, well, okay, that could be interesting. <laughs> I like I like cheddar cheese, I like bacon, I like maple syrup, and you know, chicken's fine, it's whatever. And of all the things on the menu, that looked the most interesting to me. It wasn't like, it's not totally out of left field to put maple syrup with chicken, you know, I mean, chicken and waffles obviously is a thing. Uh, from LA, eating fried chicken with a little bit of cane syrup or molasses or sorghum or anything like that is also a thing that's done by anybody that loves fried chicken. So, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't crazy. By the way, I'm ladling out my cream and maple syrup uh, sauce into my ramekins over the top of my cake batter. Ladleful over the top of each one. This is going to be exactly the right amount. So there's a few little chunks of the cake that poke up above the maple syrup. And those will get nice and brown and crispy cakey. And then the maple syrup and the, the cream will condense a little bit in the oven caramelize a little bit and I'm putting these guys in there we go okay so the pudding chamur is in and I gotta set a timer and then I'll get back to describing this chicken Vermont go with 22 minutes to start with 
So I'm like, Chicken Vermont, all right, this is, it, it's a little weird. I've certainly never come across something like that before. But, you know, I started thinking about it. I was like, all right, well, this is not, this isn't so out there that, you know, it might not be good. So I ordered it. <laughs> I told my wife, I was like, hey, I'm getting the Chicken Vermont. She was like, what's a Chicken Vermont? And she's from Maine, and she'd never heard of it. I tell her what it is. She's like, that sounds, she, she basically said, that's going to either be totally revolting or it's going to be amazing. I was like, yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to roll the dice here. So what I got, unfortunately, it was this kind of restaurant where this is what you're going to get for, you know, 20 bucks or whatever the plate costs. I got uh, uh, obviously a pre-breaded chicken cutlet that had been sort of indifferently fried, covered with a half melted slice of American cheese, crisscrossed with two strips of whatever generic bacon and absolutely drenched in Aunt Jemima or Mrs. Butterworth or probably at that place, whatever the cheapest, you know, Cisco 25 gallon drum of industrial imitation maple syrup could possibly be. So that's, that's what I wound up with. And, you know, as the thing about, you know, really badly made food like that is if you imagine you can kind of see what they wanted, like they are a long way from there, but you sort of can tell where how everything is sort, sort of supposed to fuse together like there's you're supposed to get the crunchiness of the chicken is supposed to contrast with the the melted cheese and the kind of crispy bacon and then of course the stickiness of the the maple syrup and then the sweetness of the maple syrup is supposed to contrast with the savoriness of the bacon and the sharpness from the cheese and the the chicken itself is supposed to not really have much flavor and bring everything it's like the palate for everything to happen on so you can you can tell there's a way to make this good. So when we got back, not long after that, I actually, I spent a long time, I was like, I was kind of imagining like, how, how, would, we, how would you make this good? How would you make this work? And I would joke with my wife every now and then. I'd be like, hey, one day I'm gonna make chicken for mom. She'd be like, no. <laughs> and, and then finally one day I, I said, you know what, I'm gonna do it. I had some maple syrup. I don't remember where I got it. And I did it and I made it and it was, Actually, spent some time on the sauce. It wasn't just drenched in straight maple syrup. And I used decent cheese and I used some decent bacon and fried the chicken properly and all that stuff. And it was fantastic. I will, I will say, I'm not lying. It was really, really good. So today we are going to make a variation on this, this dish that I had that was just horrible when I had it. But it was the kind of horrible where you, you go, there's something there. So I'm going to walk you through how I sort of tried to repair Chicken Vermont and make it something worthy of the name of the great state of Vermont and not just pre-breaded chicken drenched in Mrs. Butterworth. All right. The first problem with, with the dish as it was served to me was that the bacon, unless you're eating it in a sandwich or eating it as a strip on its own, bacon should always be chopped up because otherwise, like if you ever tried to cut a piece of bacon with either with just a fork or like a fork and knife, it's actually kind of hard. It just sort of shatters. You can't spear it cleanly with a fork. So it's hard to, it's hard to chase down a piece of bacon if it isn't already crumbled up, you know, if it's not already chopped into fairly small pieces. So we're going to start our redesigned chicken Vermont by cutting up three strips of bacon and putting them into a saucepan, chopped up into relatively small pieces. I kind of wish that I had a full slab of bacon because then you could chop it into lardons, which are like the, 
sort of crouton-sized pieces of bacon. And that, it would be a really awesome texture to have with these, because then, then you get like an almost like pork belly, sort of crispy on the outside and real soft on the inside. But I don't have any of that. I don't have any slab bacon. That's okay. Now the other thing, the other advantage of starting this way is now I have some, I'm gonna have some, some bacon fat that I can use as the base of my sauce. So we're gonna have two separate sources of bacon in this whole dish. One is going to be the crispy bacon bits themselves, and the other is gonna be some bacon fat sitting at the bottom of the sauce, pinning it all together, and making it delicious. And I have chopped an onion. I would kind of prefer to have a shallot. I don't have any shallots today. I have an onion. So we're gonna have an onion, and that is gonna go in the dish with the bacon fat. I'm gonna strain out the onion at the end, although you don't really have to, I'm going to. Just because I don't really want this to have onion bits. I want a really smooth sauce. I think, personally, I think that when you make a breaded, like a cutlet, I think smooth sauces work better with, with them than sauces with little things chunking, chunking around in them. You know, you need that contrast between the craggy outside surface and the, the velvety smoothness of the sauce. And so in a dish like this, this is, the sauce is gonna be obviously a lot of, of the flavor components because a chicken cutlet is gonna taste like a chicken cutlet. Like there's nothing, you can vary the marinade and you can vary, you know, any herbs or whatever that you might put in the, in the breading. But pretty much like a chicken cutlet is a chicken cutlet. Sharp cheddar cheese, no matter what the cheese is, you know, obviously different cheeses are gonna taste a little different from each other. But sharp cheddar cheese is still, for the most part, gonna be sharp cheddar cheese. Bacon is gonna be bacon. So what you gotta vary, what you have to work with is the sauce. Now you could just do straight maple syrup. <laughs> if you're using really good maple syrup on top of all this other stuff, then yeah, that would be fine. But it's a little bit, it's a little bit bludgeony. It's like a little bit too, and there's times when you want that. There is times when I could totally go for that. But this is kind of one of those, one of those sauces where we're, we're gonna try to just, instead of it just being really aggressively maple, we're gonna dial back on the maple a little bit and see if we can put it into a little picture frame with some other things and get everything to sit nice so that all of a sudden they become a lot more than the sum of their very delicious parts. And that just takes a little tiny bit of work on our part. Not very much, this will not be very difficult. But the most important thing right now is to crisp up the bacon. And I should say that we can do most of this beforehand. We can make, we can get the sauce most of the way there well before we consider, you know, starting to fry the chicken. This is definitely something that suits itself to, to a lot of pre-preparation with just a little bit of last minute work right before it's time to cook the final, final dish. So if you wanted to make this at like a dinner party or something, it would be really easy because the sauce is all pre-made and then you come in, you fry the chicken. You can even, you've bred the chicken beforehand, come in at the, at the last minute, fry the chicken, boom, you're good. Finish the sauce, which is really simple and we'll get to that. While we're waiting on the bacon to fry, we'll talk about the other ingredients of the sauce. I'm pulling the plastic wrap off a, off a bowl of creme fraiche that I've started yesterday because I knew that I was gonna be making this particular sauce. And creme fraiche, as we've talked about on the show, it's really easy to make. You pour some heavy cream into a bowl with a little bit of buttermilk and you let it sit out. One day is good, two days is actually a lot better, but I only had one day. Um, one day gets you most of the way there on the flavor, but two days gets you really, really thick, thick creme fraiche. The, the bacteria that are acidifying the cream also over time tend to thicken things up. And the nice thing about creme fraiche as opposed to say yogurt or sour cream, which you can also use, is that with creme fraiche, you can boil it. 
you can reduce it like heavy cream. And that is something that we are going to be doing here in just a little bit is reducing some cream. So I just poured out a little bit. It's probably a half a cup or so of heavy cream or of uh, my creme fraiche. You can use heavy cream as well, especially for a dish like this. It's not gonna use that much in the end. A lot of people assume that sauces that use cream should be mostly cream and really, they really shouldn't. Remember that cream is basically butter that still has quite a bit of water in it. And then if you also remember that a lot of sauces get thickened toward at, right at the last minute with butter, you know, a little knob of butter into some sauce will help make the sauce a little bit thicker. It'll gloss things up a little bit. It'll make the texture a little silkier. It'll make everything just a little bit sexier. And then think about cream that has been reduced to where it's still not, you, you haven't driven all the water out, out of it. You haven't broken it down into milk fat. It's still emulsified. And basically what cream is, is sort of a super emulsified butter. What you wanna do before you use cream in a sauce is you wanna drive off a lot of the excess water because you don't want that water. You don't care about that water. The water is getting in the way of your sauce being thick and beautiful. So if you just reduce the cream down by about half, maybe a little bit more, you get a much thicker cream with much less water that can then thicken a sauce much thicker and much nicer and you'll wind up using less of it. I've seen people, they'll take like a, you know, straight out of the whipped cream container and pour it into a saucepan and heat it up a little bit and then add some flavorings and call it a cream sauce. And that's not really what you wanna do. Drink cream one day and tell me what it tastes like. And it tastes like cream. Like there's not a lot of flavor complexity in cream. It has an incredible richness and an incredible mouthfeel, but it's not doing much for the flavor. And it tends to, in fact, a lot of people say that cream, it will dull the palate. Imagine taking a bite of like a fresh mint leaf or even a handful of fresh mint leaves on their own, like to where they're almost so intense that you can't even finish them. Now, if you throw the, those mint leaves into a cup of warm cream, and pull them back out and chew on them again, all of a sudden the mint flavor is much less pronounced. And that's kind of a problem in sauce making. Like that's not the goal. <laughs> you know, you do, want, you do want to smooth out the flavor and you want to distribute the flavor throughout the bite evenly, but you definitely don't want to lose the flavor. You don't want to lose the intensity. So that's something that can be a little bit dangerous with cream and the best way of counteracting it is to start out with regular cream and just reduce it down. Now, if you reduce it too far, it will break and broken cream is useless. There's nothing you can do with it. So don't do that. But, uh, but if you reduce it the right amount, then you'll get a nice thickening agent that will work very well to thicken a sauce. My bacon is now pretty well fried and I'm just gonna strain it through a strainer, because I don't want to use all the bacon fat. It threw off quite a bit. I'm just going to add back maybe a couple tablespoons of bacon fat, just enough to saute my onions in. And a little bit of salt for the onions. And always reduce your cream over a fairly, you know, you want it to be hot enough so that you're definitely at a simmer, but you don't want to really boil it, because for one thing, if you boil cream, it has a tendency to really puff up. It's really easy to spend, send it cascading down the sides of your saucepan. The other reason is if you boil it too hard, it will sometimes break. In general, just a nice, real low simmer. It, it usually doesn't take too long to reduce, especially in the 
volumes that we're dealing with at home. Now, the next component of my sauce is going to be a little bit of chicken stock. And this is a chicken stock. I always buy my chickens whole and break them down. And then I throw all the skin and all the bones and all the whatever else is left. All that goes into the stock pot. A lot of times, if I'm just making everyday chicken stocks and I don't really, you know, have a particular use for it, a lot of times I'll just make a white chicken stock, which is, of course, unroasted, unbrowned chicken stock. You just throw the bones in raw. But for something like this, it's gonna go up against a fried chicken cutlet and maple syrup and bacon and a bunch of other intense flavors. So I want my sauce to have some intensity to the flavor too, so I went ahead and I just roasted my chicken carcass and my leftover bits. Not for very long, for you know, 20 minutes or whatever. I was roasting, I had a pork roast in the oven too, so I just threw it in there at 425 or something like that. And that, that just gives everything a little bit of a depth of flavor that it wouldn't otherwise have. And I just made a stock in the usual manner. So my onions are cooking and because it's me and I just can't do stuff like this without a little garlic. I'm gonna go ahead and throw a little garlic in. Skinned, rough chop, and into the pan it goes. I'm not gonna cook this garlic for very long. I never, when I'm making a sauce like this, especially when I'm doing this as like a base sauce that I'll then finish later when it's time to make the actual dish. I almost never start with the amount that I think I'm gonna need. I like to start with just a little bit and let that first bit reduce and then add a little bit more and then let that reduce and then add a little, look at my pudding chômeur. I like to let that reduce and then add a little bit more and that way you build sort of layers of flavor of the chicken stock because as it reduces, it intensifies in flavor. And then you add a little bit more of the stuff that's less intense, but now there's a core of a very intense kind. So as if you do it three or four times, you get sort of different levels of uh, intensity of chicken flavor, I feel. I think that the flavor changes as it, as it cooks. Oh, oh. Oh, you would not believe these things. These are just unbelievable. Wow, they are totally ready. So the cake, the cake is sort of absorbed a lot of the, of the sauce on the outside, the maple syrup and the cream. And so the cakes, the cakes all rise up, rise up from the ramekin a little bit, you know, because they do have a little bit of baking powder in them. And they're all puffy and bubbly and just gorgeous. And they've absorbed all of this maple syrup, except for the bits that are bubbling around it. And it's just fantastic looking. It's like the greatest looking bread pudding that you'll ever see. And that sound that you hear is the bubbling of the maple syrup and the cream. It's so good. I'll add another maybe half cup of chicken stock. Bring that to a boil. And the cream is quite a bit thicker. It's about three quarters of the volume it was. Make sure you give it a stir every now and then to if there's any bits that are starting to coagulate or stick a little, you can often get them back. Okay, so now as I'm engaging in this process of reducing my sauce, my chicken stock, so that I get a nice, deep, rich chicken flavor, I'm gonna start thinking a little bit about what other flavors I might want to involve in here, what the, su what the supporting flavors might be. And the first one that comes to mind, because, well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just tell you, at the end of it, when we're just about done, right before I add the cream or the creme fraiche, 
I'm also gonna add a lemon. Lemon and maple syrup, fantastic together. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put in some lemon juice right at the end. You don't wanna cook the lemon juice too long because so much of the appeal of it is that bright, lemony, fresh flavor. So I'm starting out and these are the flavors that I'm working with in the sauce. It's gonna be maple syrup and lemon. Okay, what else? Thyme and with those two is amazing. It is just phenomenal. I don't know how it works so well, but it does. It is just, just awesome. We're gonna incorporate some thyme and I'm gonna put the thyme here in the base part of the sauce. What we're gonna end up here once I'm done with this step is I'm gonna have one little bit, probably two to three tablespoons of, of reduced heavy cream. And then I'm gonna have however much sauce I get out of here. It's probably gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of a cup, I'm guessing, of heavily reduced chicken stock. And in a little bit, I'm gonna add the maple syrup as well so that the maple syrup will be fully incorporated in this chicken stock and nice and heated all the way through. And then I'll strain it all at the end today. And then when it's time for me to actually cook my chicken, uh, my chicken Vermont, then all I gotta do is put a little bit of this in the, uh, in a saucepan and finish it with the cream, with the lemon juice, and possibly with some butter, although we'll see. Probably, won't. I might not use butter. Sometimes, a lot of times if I'm finishing with reduced cream, a lot of times I won't use butter. Occasionally I will, just kind of depends. I'll make that decision later. And so the chicken stock, what it's doing, its role in the sauce is twofold. One, obviously, is to give it a chickeny flavor. The other, is to contribute vast quantities of gelatin to the sauce so that that will go a long way in giving the sauce a rich mouthfeel. Gelatin has that characteristic of it's not like, you know, a starch-based sauce, like a cornstarch sauce or, or a roux sauce can have kind of, it can tend towards the gloopy and kind of the sticky. Gelatin sauces will often look thinner than their starch-thickened cousins but when you put them in your mouth, the way that the gelatin melts across your palate and releases flavor is so silky and, and really, really luxurious. You know, it's like it, it, it coats your mouth very slowly, but it doesn't stay behind. It goes away. And when it goes away, that makes you want to take another bite to experience it again. As opposed to particularly at like a poorly made, you know, if you've ever had like bad biscuits and gravy that just kind of sticks to your mouth and it's gloopy and sort of dry almost. This is the opposite of that. The other thing to remember about some of these sauces like this is that you don't necessarily want to serve a lot of it. You know, people make fun of like restaurants that, you know, they'll, they'll serve a little thing with a fairly small drizzle of sauce across it. But if you make the sauce really intent, intense, you don't really want too much of it. You know, you want just a little bit with each bite because if it's too intense, it overwhelms everything else. All right, so that is probably gonna be my last addition of chicken stock. I'm gonna let that reduce. And now I can see that in my reduced cream, now like the bubbles are almost staying put when they bubble, like they, they stay there. They don't just immediately burst. There's, there's quite a bit of tension in the, in the reduced cream. And remember, this is creme fraiche too, and creme fraiche has, a, has an acidic component. So I'm gonna have two sources of acid. I'm gonna have the lemon juice and I'm gonna have the creme fraiche. And that is, those are both to just help damp down the sweetness of the maple syrup, because I don't want the maple syrup to be cloying. I don't want the maple syrup to just be like, ah, 
you know, I don't want it to be too sweet. I want to emphasize what I'm looking to do more than the, than the sweetness is what I want is the maple flavor. I want those vanilla flavors to come out and, and that woodiness and that sort of earthiness that maple syrup has that especially the, the really good stuff. So that's what I'm looking for more than just sweetness, which is one of the problems with the original version that I had where they just dumped corn syrup basically with a little artificial maple flavor on top is that the only thing that you were getting is just sweetness. And yes, it's true. The palate loves sweetness, but the palate also loves other things as well. Okay, so now I've reduced my cream to by about half and that is probably gonna be good. There's a distinct trail that follows my spoon and when I run my fingernail across the back of the spoon, the trace stays which means it's probably at a pretty solid consistency. Gonna get my maple syrup. And again, I'm just gonna start out, I'm gonna add a little at a time. I don't wanna overwhelm it with maple syrup, but that's about maybe a half a cup. And now, again, the maple syrup has a lot of water in it. So now we'll, we'll reduce this all down a little bit and drive off some more of the water and hopefully leave behind those beautiful caramelized maple woodsy earthy foresty awesomeness. And the sugars, which they're already caramelized a little bit from the extensive boiling process to even make maple syrup, the sugars will now caramelize a little bit more. And so we'll get even more complexity from the flavor. So by the time we're done with this, there's gonna be flavors we don't understand happening. There's the slight vegetal savoriness of the onions. There's the hits of the garlic. Now that I've added my maple syrup and I'm getting towards the final reduction process, now, I'm gonna drop in a little dried thyme. Not a lot, just a little pinch. And this is gonna get filtered out with the, when I filter out the garlic and the onions too. A little dried thyme, a little bit of paprika, just to give it a little sort of hint of that peppery sweetness. And, because I can't help it, I'm going to add just a pinch of cayenne. Just to wake up your taste buds a little bit. Now one thing to remember is that at this point, I added a little bit of salt to the onions, not very much, but just a little tiny bit. And I am not gonna add any salt at all to this thing until the very, very end when I'm gonna taste it and we'll see if it needs salt or not. It might not. You know, we started with some bacon fat, there was some salt in that. I never put salt in my chicken stock when I make chicken stock, so there's no salt in that. So we don't have to worry about that. And I'm gonna give it a little bit more maple syrup because I think it's probably gonna need it just from the way it smells. By the end of this process, what I'm looking for is a very substantial maple flavor buoyed by kind of a lot of savoriness uh, mixing with the sweetness. But it's okay at this point if it's a little bit, if you taste it and you're a little bit like, a little bit underwhelmed because what we're gonna do at the end tomorrow or whenever I make this is when it's time to finish the sauce, we add the lemon juice and we add the creme fraiche and that should help things perk up that should bring everything back into focus so that all of a sudden, oh, now there's our sauce. Taste it. Because now at this point, the only thing we can do is keep tasting. And you can, you can watch how the sauce behaves on the spoon. In this case, it's relatively thick. It has good viscosity, good surface tension. It doesn't move like super fast. Parts of it want to stay behind. Oh, that's tasty. That is tasty. Uh, at this point, it's a little bit chickeny, so I'm gonna add a little bit more maple syrup. 
Right now the chicken is dominating the maple syrup a bit. I want the maple syrup to dominate the chicken. And the sauce itself is, is this gorgeous mahogany color right now. It's a little translucent. It's really, really pretty. And another spoon. Let's see where we're at. Yeah, it definitely darkened up quite a bit with that last addition of maple syrup. I think this might. Mm. Oh. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 As a base sauce, that is where we want to be. It is right now, it's slightly too sweet. Um, there's a, that last addition of maple syrup amped up the maple flavor a little bit. It also made it a little bit too sweet, but that's okay because remember when we finish this, we're gonna give it a big shot of acid in lemon juice and we're gonna give it creme fraiche, which is gonna smooth out any rounded edges that we have. And then right before we serve it, we'll be ready to taste it. And go, is there any last minute thing? Maybe we want a shot of maple syrup in right at the last minute to give it like a really fresh maple flavor. Maybe we need a little more salt. Maybe we just want to hit a, a hit of pepper. Maybe there's something, we'll just see where we're at. But right now I have a base sauce that I can now use to, to finish for the final dish, which is going to be making the chicken cutlet and putting everything together. And we will do that in the future. I'm pretty lucky today because I get to do my frying of my chicken cutlets in some lard. It's not gonna be all lard because I have a limited amount. Very lovely person blessed me with a small amount of pig fat that I then rendered down into some lard. The nice thing about lard, even if you don't use all lard to fry, you can mix it with uh, some of your regular frying oil and you'll still get very lard-like results, which is nice. I'm getting everything else out here. So I've got my sauce that I made yesterday, which has now, oh, it's very lovely. It's a very thick, very beautiful looking, clear mahogany, not quite jelly. It's not quite gelled, but it's pretty close. And there's a little layer of bacon fat on the top of it because the sauce, again, it's not finished, so it's not completely emulsified. And I'm just gonna let it heat up. And my chicken cutlets are all ready to go. I have made them in the totally bog standard method of three-part breading. Uh, in this case, I used cornstarch and pastry flour for the first part and then egg mixed with a little bit of water for the second, and panko for the third. Pretty basic. Personally, I like to season the inside part of the batter, the flour and the cornstarch mixture, that doesn't go on the outside and doesn't get exposed to the high heat, so that there's less chance that some of the spices might burn. And I just used uh, some pretty basic spices, paprika, uh, a little bit of white pepper, a little cayenne and a little garlic powder and a little MSG. Um, I didn't use any salt because I have also had these sitting in a buttermilk brine because I do things the correct way and fried chicken in a buttermilk brine is the way to go. The last thing that I'm gonna have to do and the only real decision that I have left to make now is what I'm gonna do with my cheese. You know, in the original Chicken Vermont that I had where this was all inspired by, uh, the cheese was as I said, a half-melted slice of American cheese, and that's just not gonna work. I've got some Tillamook cheddar. It's not super aged, although you most definitely could use a super aged sharp cheddar for this, and it would be quite delicious. 
I could cut it as a slice, but I don't think it would melt sufficiently in the way that I want it to. So what I'm gonna do instead is I'm gonna grate it. And at the last minute, after I've fried the chicken, but before I've put the sauce on, I'm gonna put the cheese on top of it. And I'm gonna run it under the broiler, just until the cheese melts and browns and gets a little bubbly. And I'm also gonna solve a second problem here, which is what, what am I gonna do with my bacon bits? And what I'm gonna do with my bacon bits is I'm just gonna add them directly to the cheese so that now my topping for my chicken breasts will be shredded cheese topped with some bacon bits and the bacon bits will be embedded in the cheese which will solve the other problem of random bacon bits being sort of hard to get into a bite to incorporate because now they'll already be incorporated by being melted into the cheese. I'll pour the sauce on top of that and we'll be good to go. And all I've done now is I've melted my sauce and I'm going to taste it and see where we're at after the flavors have had a chance to meld overnight. Mmm. Ooh, that's really nice. Yeah, the maple is the first thing you get. The maple and interestingly the thyme. The thyme hits right after the maple. And then after that kind of the sweetness comes in and you can just sort of taste like there's like a perkiness about it from the cayenne pepper. You don't really detect now the, it doesn't taste like chicken. Like it doesn't taste like chicken stock like it did before I started, you know, before I got the maple syrup right. Now it tastes like very distinctly of maple. There's no mistaking it. And there is a, a, a beautiful little sweetness that, that sort of lingers and keeps the flavors rolling throughout your mouth. I have probably a cup of sauce here. I've got probably a little less than a quarter cup of the reduced cream ready to go. I have a little bit of some maple syrup and I need to get my lemon ready to go. And I'm gonna go ahead and preheat my broiler. And I also should mention that I pre-breaded my chicken and it's been sitting out exposed to the air for an hour, hour and a half or so. And that just helps the, the coating set up a little bit. Um, a lot of times, like if you find that you're frying things and you're getting that part where the, the coating always wants to separate from the chicken, it's probably because you're not letting it, you're not letting the coating set up. Best practice always in frying is to coat the chicken before, or coat whatever you're frying beforehand. So loose batters that you might fry something in, those obviously you have to dip right before you fry. But if you're making, a, you know, a breading as opposed to a batter, then you wanna you wanna give it some time to set up. And when I'm pan frying, I generally turn things multiple times. I feel like they cook a little better that way, a little more evenly. And I'm just popping them onto a paper towel right next to the stove here, flipping them over a couple times to make sure they evaporate some of that moisture that will make them soggy. My only rack is currently being used to hold up the other two chicken cutlets right now. So I don't have that available. So we just do what we can do. 155. All right. The last bit is to finish the sauce. Put the sauce over a little higher burner. Finish the sauce and broil the cheese, I guess, technically. Once my Chicken cutlets have drained a little bit. I'm gonna look at them both. Pick the nice side of each one and arrange them on a broiler safe pan and top them with my bacon and cheddar mixture. Generously top them. No single slice of half melted American cheese for me. We've got a nice chunk of grated Tillamook 
sharp cheddar, and some bacon bits. And we'll just throw those in. All right, my sauce has now come up to a little bit of a simmer. I gotta work a little quickly here. So the first thing we're gonna do is add some of the cream, and that is a little over a tablespoon. We'll start with that. And I'm just want, I wanna get the texture to be just about right. So we don't want to be boiling while we add the cream. We want everything now happens very gently. So I'm adding the cream, stirring while I do it, and now the sauce is starting to turn opaque. It's starting to thicken up. I got heat on very, very low. I think I'm gonna add a little bit more cream. I want it to be a little thicker. I have a feeling I'm gonna use all of the cream that I did yesterday, but let's see. Once this cream is incorporated, which it almost is, just keep stirring. I'm just using the back of a spoon. All right, the sauce is much, very homogenous now. Now it's a rich brown, it looks a bit like a gravy, and I got half the lemon. And I'm just gonna squeeze the lemon, the half the lemon juice in there through my hands. Oh, yeah. That just really perked it up. Check on my... Oh man, that's happened quick. Oh, that's beautiful. That is pretty. Cheese is melted onto the bacon bits. Turn off the broiler. Just about done here. I'm gonna add the last of this heavy cream, or creme fraiche, this reduced creme fraiche. And once this incorporates, then I'll taste it one more time, decide what I need. I've got, a, like I say, I got a little bit of maple syrup that I'm gonna finish it with, I think. But it might need a little salt. We'll see, here we go. Oh, oh, that's good. Yeah, a little, a little pinch of some fresh maple syrup and not even very much. This will just perk up the maple a little bit more. There's a definite sweetness, but it's not sweet. It's not desserty. It's not something that you would find difficult to eat at all. So here we go. I'm gonna take it over to my plates now and just drizzle it over. Now this is, you know, remember, this is gonna be a little thinner than maybe if you're really used to you know, the real thick starch-based sauces, this style of sauce making is much thinner, but it sets up really, really quickly on the, on the plate, which is how, you know, you use this kind of sauce to make all the artistic dribbles and stuff. But mm, that's really good. That's really good. And I'm going to resist the temptation to cover this with a bunch of parsley because that would not be good. It's good as it is. Chicken Vermont, the way I wished that they would have made it. And I have to eat this because it looks really good. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy performed by Quator Ebane. Maple syrup was provided by Jillian Rogers. This is the fourth episode of the spring 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support 
to help produce programs like this. Thank you.